Welcome to Trinity Forum Conversations. I'm your host and president of the Trinity Forum, Cherie Harder. Our desire is to help you wrestle with and reflect on the big questions in life. Like, why are we here? What does it mean to be human? And what is the good life? We lean on the best of the Christian intellectual tradition and elevate the thought leaders, both ancient and modern, who best grapple with these questions and direct our hearts towards the author of the answers. So whether you are pouring yourself a cup of tea and settling into a comfortable nook, hopping on the treadmill, or just starting your commute, we invite you to join us in one of the great joys of life, a conversation among friends on the things that matter most. We hope this episode will challenge your thinking and encourage your heart. With that, here's today's conversation. One of the questions that seems to haunt so many of us as we survey and even lament the angry and divisive nature of our public rhetoric is how do we get to this place? How did we, in the words of our guest today, increasingly come to view people who disagree with us, not merely as mistaken or incorrect, but as worthless? And how do we reweave compassion and care for others into a civic fabric corroded by contempt? Our guest today is an economist and a policy wonk, but he offers a way forward that's not primarily either political or economic, but both spiritual and highly practical. The antidote to our current ills, he suggests, can be found in ancient New Testament teaching, to love our neighbor and to even love our enemies. He borrows from the definition of love offered by St. Thomas Aquinas as willing the good of the other. It is an intriguing and deeply countercultural argument. And certainly there are few who can make it with the panache persuasive power, passion, or the piles of data as our guest today, Arthur Brooks. Arthur is an economist who serves as a professor of leadership at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, as well as a faculty member at the Harvard Business School. After a remarkable decade of service as the president and CEO of the American Enterprise Institute, one of the world's most influential think tanks. He is a columnist for The Atlantic, the host of the podcast, The Art of Happiness with Arthur Brooks, the recipient of six honorary degrees, a friend of the Dalai Lama, and is the subject of the 2019 documentary film, The Pursuit, which Variety Magazine named as one of the best documentaries on Netflix. He is also the author of 11 best-selling books, including his excellent and most recent work, Love Your Enemies, How Decent People Can Save America from a Culture of Contempt which we've invited him here today to discuss. So Arthur, welcome. Thank you, Cherie. Wonderful to be with you and to be with all of my friends from the Trinity Forum from all over the world. Well, we're really glad to have you here. So I have to ask you, there's been a lot of talk lately about how angry our politics has become. Right. But one of the things you say in your book is that it's not actually anger that's the problem, it's contempt. So let's start by just asking you, what is contempt and what differs it from anger and why is it so corrosive? So people can see a lot of anger. If you tune into uh, cable television and, and around primetime, you'll see people yelling at each other and you can 
think of that as an angry or hostile reaction of one to the other, but that's actually not what we're talking about. Anger is a hot emotion. And it says, I care and I want you to do something differently. However, that fact that, that I care what you think and I want you to think differently or behave differently is not something that would draw people to hate each other or to drive people apart. Now, a little bit of brain science is in order, and I, I promise I won't go, you know, ruin our session by talking about this too much. But, you know, the primary negative emotions are anger, sadness, fear, and disgust. These are processed in the limbic system of the brain. They're very ancient. They were evolved more than a million years ago before the prefrontal cortex. And, and one of the things that we know is that they, we use them in reaction to different things. Fear to, to survive, basically. Sadness is, is completely normal. Anger, as I said, is to express the idea that I want you to do something differently. Disgust is an emotion, is a primary negative emotion that we use in response to a pathogen. Now here's the problem. When we take anger, which is normal, and we mix in disgust, we get contempt. This is a, a complex negative emotion, and it's an amalgam of these two. Now, uh, philosophers refer to contempt as the conviction of the utter worthlessness of another person. I'm angry with you, and I'm disgusted by you, and therefore I think that you're worthless. When you express contempt for another person and treat them as if they were a pathogen, you will have a permanent enemy. And there's a lot of research that shows that when people are going to have implacable differences, hostile differences, even violent differences, almost always they don't come from anger, they come from this complex phenomenon called contempt. Wow. Well, that sort of begs the question of sort of how do we get there? Because it's one thing to be angry with someone, it's one thing to be afraid. But we are at a point where many Americans ascribe essentially murderous ideologies to those with whom we disagree. Are there, are there certain practices or habits of mind that has predisposed a mass turn from anger or disagreement to disgust? There, there, there is, and what ordinarily happens after, and, and this is just as a social science matter, after financial crises or those where there's a lot of competition between citizen and citizen for resources, you very frequently see populism and polarization crop up in politics, which is a very fear-based kind of politics. Fear-based politics uses the rhetoric of contempt, uses the rhetoric of disgust for one citizen toward another. And then it becomes kind of the vehicular language of how we start to talk in our political situations. Now, there's a very interesting body of literature that psychologists are involved in that explains hostility between groups of people. And it's called, it's, it's based on something called motive attribution asymmetry. So motive attribution asymmetry is very simple. Two groups of people can't get along. They, it, this is based on a cognitive error on both sides that I am motivated by love, but you're motivated by hatred. And so there's nothing that we can talk about under any circumstances. That actually underlies most implacable hostility where, where groups simply can't understand each other and get along. And there's a lot of literature that shows that that's, it's in huge supply after things like the Rwandan genocide and the Balkans crisis, certainly in the Palestinian Israeli crisis where both sides think they're motivated by love but the other side by hatred. But now for the first time we actually see this in American politics 
As a matter of fact, there are three psychologists at Northwestern that have done work that show that, that the level of motive attribution asymmetry between Democrats and Republicans in the United States is the same level as what we see between the Palestinians and Israelis in the Middle East. That is actually sort of the social science of contempt, and that's what's creating this witch's brew that we see in American politics today. It's based on an error. We don't understand each other. We don't mix. We treat each other as pathogens. And so therefore, your neighbor can be somebody who is your implacable foe. So is there a social science explanation or, or a different kind of explanation for what has so skewed our perceptions that we have moved to viewing our, our neighbors, our colleagues with the same kind of suspicion that would characterize a Mideastern blood feud? Yeah, the theory behind this and, and, and most of the evidence suggests that it really does come from, you know, the period after the, the financial crisis. So financial crises are very different than ordinary crises, economic crises, insofar as that there is no economist on the planet that can explain how to recover over the decade after a financial crisis, which typically happens every 50 years or so, where most of the gains when we're coming back from a financial crisis don't accrue outside the top 20% of the income distribution. So the inequality of the rewards in the, in the wake of a financial crisis, what it does is it, it creates a, almost a perfect environment for politicians and leaders and media to, to, to profit on the, on the narrative that somebody's got your stuff and I'm going to get it back. A fear-based narrative that sets people up to hate the other. And so that's the political situation that we find ourselves in. And it's very typical. You see this in, at different times in American history in the late 1920s, for example, the, the turn of the 19th century when there was a, two parallel or, or, or sequential financial crises that led to the same kind of populism in American politics. This typically happens, but it's been accelerated by new trends in the way that we communicate with each other. So social media, for example, is it's gasoline on the fire. It's, it's the, you can create this bubble where you can talk to only people who agree with you, and you can talk about people with whom you disagree as the other, as opposed to ever hearing from them. We know in point of fact that when people get off social media and are exposed to their neighbors with whom they disagree, that their opinions soften, that they, it's not so hard to love your enemies when your enemy is right in front of you and your enemy's kid is playing with your kid in point of fact. But if you can, if you can make sure that you're living in a place where there's nobody who disagrees with your politics and you're looking at Facebook where everybody you talk to says that the other side is stupid and evil, well, that will harden you into an environment of contempt. And that's a very combustible and dangerous situation in which we find ourselves today. So you mentioned earlier that when we treat others with contempt, we essentially earn an enemy. But when you look at so much of our uh, political rhetoric, it seems like the point is almost to insult as opposed to to persuade. Why do you think we have largely abandoned the attempt to persuade each other? Well, part of it is that ordinarily populist politics works the same way, and it has in every country, and it has across all generations. It's a situation in which you, you're trying to get as much intensity from the true believers as you can. This is a very different idea than trying to soften the hostiles and win the persuadables. So in, in any political context, or for that matter, anything that we're trying to 
to, to do any message that we're trying to make people understand. So I'm a Christian, for example, and, and I know that there are four dispositions to the Christian gospel. There are true believers, there are hostiles, people who think we're stupid and evil and really misguided. There are persuadables, they're not there yet, they're willing to listen, and then there are the apathetics, the lukewarm, the furthest away, right? Everybody is in one of those four baskets. Now, in the long run, if you want to win, if you want a movement that's going to be compelling and it's going to grow, you need to challenge and improve the true believers. You need to soften the hostiles by treating them with love such that you'll be more winsome to the persuadables, and then you have to simply try to interest the apathetics. But that's not what you do in a populist climate where you're, where you're working on, the, on, the, uh, on fear. Now, one side note about fear. Fear is the ultimate negative emotion. Fear is the opposite of love. Love is what we do when we're trying to bring people into the faith, for example, but it's also what we're trying to do when we're persuading people of something good and better than the status quo. That's a love-based approach. The opposite of that, the orthogonal approach to that is one of fear. If you're not working on the plane of love, you're working on the plane of fear, and that's what this polarization is actually doing. So instead of trying to challenge and improve the true believers, you fire them up by saying, you're right. Instead of trying to reach out in love to the hostiles to soften them, you, you throw grenades at them. Instead of actually trying to win the persuadables by showing them how you treat your enemies with love, you simply just scratch your head and say, well, I hope they come along. If they don't, they're idiots. And then you have no idea what to do about the apathetics. Well, it can actually be profitable in the short term. You can lock down your base in the short term, but that's the worst possible approach if you want to build a movement that endures and stands the test of time. One of the things I thought was quite interesting about reading your book is you point out the dangers of thinking of our neighbor as either evil and stupid as well as opposed to simply misguided. But crowds, you point out, actually have both a lower cognitive and moral threshold than individuals. So in some ways, crowds, and of course the internet is the ultimate crowd, is more uh, predisposed to act in either an evil or stupid way than any individual. If anything, we have become a society far more reliant on social media. What do you think the prospects are that we'll become more loving and compassionate? I think the prospects are good, and the reason I'm, an, I'm and I'm not just an, a Pollyanna, I'm not just an optimist, I'm looking at the historical precedent. And what gives me hope is, is that people don't like fear-based politics. Right now, when I look at the data on, on how people think about American politics, 93%, literally 93% of Americans say they hate how divided we become. And I see similar numbers in other countries. I see very similar numbers coming out of the UK, coming out of France, coming out of Spain, for example. They hate how divided we become, but they don't know what to do. Well, there's an old saying in public policy that things that can't persist forever won't. And, and, and so this is a market opportunity when people, 93% of Americans hate it, they don't know how to break out of this paradigm. We will actually see politicians, we will see leaders, we will see social movements that crop up on the basis of, of trying to do something better. How long will it take? We don't know. Ordinarily, as an empirical matter, it takes between 10 and 20 years after a financial crisis. In other words, here's the good news, we're due. So how does it happen? And the answer is with all of us, with each one of us. We're a sympathetic community of these ideas, right? So what can we do? And the answer is we model the behavior, 
We, the, we demand the behavior. We refuse to reward the behavior that we abhor, which is to say, hating our enemies. <laughs> and in so doing, we will be happier. We will make other people happier. We have the, the prospect of at least being the beginning of some sort of a movement because each one of us is blessed with leadership responsibilities. Everybody has some leadership and people will want more of that. People will want more of the love that we show. Remember Tertullian in the fourth, in the fourth century, this early Christian, you know, he, he talked about the, the amazing effect that the, that the early Christians were having on their environment and on the, on the Romans around them. And he said that they, that he said that the Romans, they, you know, they'll throw, they'll take the Christians and put them in the Colosseum and feed them to the lions and do these horrible things to them. But they're just amazed at how much they love each other and even love their enemies. And, and he said that people were coming across to their religion, the religion of the persecuted, because of the power of the example of love. We can still do that. We are the early church. We will always be the early church but only if we remember that love must radiate from us because it is our only apostolate. So we're going to turn to audience questions in a few minutes, but before we do, I want to talk with you more about love. And one of the points you make in your book is that disagreement can actually strengthen a relationship. And in fact, it can improve a community. And you gave the example not only of you and your wife, uh, but also a sort of ideological odd couple who will be familiar to many of our viewers, that of Robbie George and Cornell West. How is it that disagreement, even conflict, can increase one's bonds and love? You know, in the Proverbs, we learn that iron sharpens iron, right? But, but that's not true if the iron never touches. You know, it, you, you actually, for iron to sharp iron, there has to be conflict. There has to be contact between these, these hard surfaces. One of the greatest things that we learned that the enlightenment has brought is that there really are three ways to adjudicate conflict. There's coercion, you know, power versus power. And we still see a ton of that today in you know, societies that are permanently at war or, or for that matter, sort of the Marxist ideology that says that everything comes down to power is to sides fighting each other for power. There's power, there's negotiation, agree to disagree and get the best that you can and go your separate ways. And then there's persuasion. Now persuasion does not require that we come to terms on something, but rather that we try to persuade each other. And the enlightenment, the fundamental insight that comes from the enlightenment is the idea that, that we don't agree, but we're going to try to convince each other and do so peacefully because I can't persuade you if I'm coercing you. That's so powerful. That's so incredible, as a matter of fact, that we're, we're trying to persuade each other all the time. And, and, and to pers be persuasive, you also have to be persuadable. Th that has led to a tremendous amount of reconciliation between otherwise con conflicted groups. That, that, that it, it's made it possible for us to freely exchange goods and services, to have peaceful transfers of power between regimes that, that disagree with each other but are selected through democratic processes. That's a persuasion culture. That's why it's really, really important, not that we agree on everything. I, look, I can get agreement on everything by simply pointing a gun at somebody. Do we agree you should give me your wallet or not? Yeah, we agree, fantastic, that's coercion. Or I can basically simply say, let's negotiate on everything and then, and then not coexist. But the highest standard of the enlightenment and in, in, in point of fact of, of civilization 
is that in which we try to persuade each other and we're confident that even if we don't agree, we can continue to coexist, that we can continue to live together. Indeed, that we can continue to love one another. That's a beautiful thing. So I'll end before we turn over to audience questions, sort of as we began with talking about love, what it is, what it looks like, and how it's tested. And in your book, you borrow a definition from St. Thomas Aquinas, as well as from Michael Novak, the late great AEI mm -hmm. scholar, among many other things, and philosopher. But what does it mean to will the good of the other? And you know, in your own life, you go all the time to fairly hostile audiences and try to persuade them. You work with people with whom you disagree on all sorts of things. Uh, you work with people that maybe you, know, you might consider obnoxious from time to time. You know, when the rubber meets the road, what does it mean to live one's life willing the good of the other and loving those with whom you disagree? You know, it's on Monday, I'm giving a talk to the assembled priests of the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. I'm going to be talking to them about, you know, the, the title of my talk is the most important thing in life. <laughs> and the most important thing in life, it turns out for those of us who are Christians, is pretty easy. God is love, so therefore love is the most important thing in life. But what is it? The problem that we have in modern life is to define it as a sentiment, as a feeling, right? So how do I know I'm in love with my wife? Because I feel love for my wife. Wrong! Love is not a sentiment. Love is not a feeling. Love is an act, and love is a commitment. That is as old as the hills. Now, one of the problems that we have in the English language, of course, is that love is just one word. It's six words in, in Greek. And, and we understand it when we break it down. You know, we think about eros between, you know, man and wife. That, be, that We talk about, about philia between friends and, and, and agape, which is the refracted divine love of God as instantiated in each of our lives. And there's so many aspects to this thing, but all of them come down in the biblical understanding, in the philosophical understanding, from Aristotle to Jesus Christ to St. Thomas Aquinas to what we should be seeing today, is as the commitment to will the good of another. That's it, notwithstanding your feelings. And that's why Dr. Martin Luther King said, he has a very famous address. Everybody should go watch it because, or listen to it because it's, it's a, a, an audio recording. You can also read it. From 1957, November 17th, 1957, at the Dexter Street Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama, where he gave a sermon on Matthew 5:44, love your enemies. And he said, it's very interesting. He said, Jesus doesn't teach us to like our enemies. Like is a sentimental something. <laughs> and he said, there are lots of people I don't like because they're mean to me and they're terrible to me. They say terrible things to me and they want to hurt me. I don't like them, but I'm called to love them. Because only then can I redeem my enemy is when I love my enemy. And to love my enemy is to will his good. Forget how I feel. That's the like part. That's the sentimental part. That's the, that depends on what you're digesting and what your brain chemistry is doing. But I can love my enemy because it's my choice. Now, I need help. I pray every day, Lord, give me the strength. Give me the strength to move beyond my feelings to move toward the, the act, the commitment that you want me to have. But that's the divinity in us, in each one of us. And, and you know, I am so grateful to have finally come to understand St. Thomas Aquinas' definition of that, which is the classical definition. It's what my master meant and what Martin Luther King meant and what Aristotle meant. And, and I think that's what we need to remember. It's a commitment and an act, not a feeling.
That's great. Thanks, Arthur. So we have a ton of questions that have, have come in. So our first question comes from John Coleman from Atlanta. And John asks, practically speaking, who are the leaders behaving like this right now and succeeding? I can't think of one political leader. This is a genuine question. No, I appreciate that, John. And, and <laughs> I hear the pain in your question, despite the fact that you posed it virtually. Um, the, there's sort of good news and bad news. And we're all focused on the bad news, which comes from the fact that we, we, we're inordinately paying attention to federal politics. Federal politics is the national reality show of our day and age. What we're paying less attention to is where more progress is being made. I talk to mayors, I talk to county commissioners, I talk to governors all the time. And they're off the radar, but they're trying to work together with different parts. They're not popular all the time. They're not making the right decision all the time. And sometimes they don't act out of love all the time. But look, I live in Massachusetts. You know, Massachusetts is the arguably the bluest state in America. We have a Republican governor, and he's literally the most popular governor in America, Charlie Baker. Is he perfect? No. But he's a good governor, and his point is he's actually trying to represent the citizens of Massachusetts across party lines. He's modeling many of the things that we're talking about here. He's, he, he, he wants everybody to prosper, to make progress, to be comfortable, to be happy to the extent that he can create that environment in Massachusetts. And I know lots who are doing that, who are Republicans, who are Democrats, who are mayors, who are governors. They're just not on CNN every single day saying outrageous things. They're not lobbing the bombs. They're not saying the hateful, vitriolic things uh, about their fellow citizens in the way that tends to make us think is typical of the entire political structure, because it's not. Our next question comes from Sarah George. And Sarah asks, how would you recommend we make friends and cultivate relationships with people and communities that are, that are different or distant? All of us in the United States can embrace more diversity. Now, it's not comfortable. It's, I mean, the silo is where you get your bonding social capital. I have a colleague here at Harvard, Robert Putnam, who wrote that famous book, Bowling Alone. And in Bowling Alone, he talks about this bonding social capital where we find identifiers, identity markers that we have in common and make us comfortable. And so we hang out with people who are like us. But that's not the only kind of social capital. It's not the morally elevated kind of social capital either. The best kind of social capital morally, especially from a Christian point of view, is bridging social capital. Or a common story of, of the divinity each inside each one of us as people made in God's image means that we can, that common story makes us bridge the demographic differences that we have in ideology, in race, in gender, in sexual orientation, in you name it that we're basically all brothers and sisters. We're the same. We're all, we're, we're all daughters and sons of God or, or whatever common story you want to tell. That's what can really bring us together. Okay. All of us can find more diversity so that we can exercise more bridging social capital. We just have to work at it. We just have to go places that we're typically a little bit less comfortable. There's every community in America has some diversity in it, but we got to make an effort to get outside of our silos. And I'm telling you, the it is so worthwhile and it is so enriching and it is so fun and so good. It's great. It's, it's an adventure actually to get out of your silo. And, and, and think of it like how much you crave getting out of the house during the coronavirus lockdowns. 
Well, you've been, st if you're, if you're not getting out of your silos, you've been in this constant ideological coronavirus lockdown, maybe for years, open the curtains, open the doors, get out. Oh, it's so good out there. And every, every single one of us can find a way to do that. Our next question comes from Bob Freiling, and he asks, how much are our political leaders responsible for the culture of contempt, and how much can they change that culture, or are they merely reflecting the broader culture? No, Bob, great question, and I thought about this a lot. So we talk about leadership. I'm actually a professor of leadership at Harvard, and, and the, here's why I'm jaundiced about the concept of leadership as we typically understand it. In democracy and capitalism, which are the, the, the political and economic instantiations of the Enlightenment, we don't really have very many leaders. We have followers. We have followers who see public demand. So you don't see very many companies that say, I'm going to do something that nobody wants. No. They say, I'm going to figure out what people want and I'm going to provide it, which is to say, there's a parade going down the street. I got to go jump in front of it. That's followership, not leadership. And I'm glad that that's actually how things work. But that also means in, in democracy, there are very few authentic leaders that start parades. Generally speaking, they, they ascertain some energy, good or bad, that exists in communities, and they say, I'm going to lead that. Now, one of the things that more, that, that more visionary leaders do is they find a kind of a latent parade, a parade that could exist, and they look for one that's to the good. So where do you find leaders? These are the people in communities, generally speaking, these are the people we call social entrepreneurs that are, that are seeing the good inside each person and they try to bring it out. And so that's kind of the, the social or cultural iPhone developers. You've never heard of this thing, but once you see it, you're really, really gonna love it because in your heart, you know you want this. That's what Dr. Martin Luther King did. That's what Gandhi did. That's what Nelson Mandela did. That's what these, these super visionary leaders for good that inflected their societies have done. And that's what we need more of today. People are willing to take a risk to say, I think there's a demand curve underlying all this stuff here. The, the, to answer the question more directly, the politicians that we see, populists are always followers. Populists are not leaders. Now, I'm not casting aspersions. You might like your favorite populist, but that person is actually not a leader. That, that person is simply giving power to the voice of the people, saying whatever the people say is right. That's the ultimate definition of followership, not leadership. So we have a question from Giff Thornton that really refers to the fate of some of the social entrepreneurs you mentioned. And he said, we extol Lincoln and King as models of leadership but both were assassinated. What do you make of that? You know, it's dangerous. It's dangerous to be, to be a social entrepreneur in, in that way. I mean, there are all kinds of ways that it's not dangerous to be a social entrepreneur. I mean, you can, you can start an arts program in a marginalized neighborhood or clean up a park and be a social entrepreneur. You're very unlikely to be assassinated because the stakes are lower. But in politics, if you're a social entrepreneur and you're going against the populist norms that you're talking about bringing love and reconciliation and peace where there is violence and where there's a negative energy, you're taking a risk. But, you know, look, we, that, that's the kind of risk that, that should bring all of us energy and joy. I mean, for what were we born? I mean, seriously. I mean, especially those of us who are, who are professed Christians. You know, it's, you think back to what it meant to be a Christian in you know, Antioch in the first century. Or there's going to be, a, you know, a knock in the night is coming. 
right? So why are you a Christian? Because part of the, the, the deal of you know, welcoming God's grace into your life to the truth and light that actually is, it should be made manifest in your life is taking the risk is understanding that you don't know the way that this thing is going to go. But we become so coddled, we become so used to feeling secure that there will be no risk, not only no risk about violence, no risk of insult, no risk of injury, no risk of repudiation, no risk of rejection. Well, that's ridiculous. If you really want to take big stakes, you got to take some chances. You got to say what you really believe. And if you do it in love, you should be able to do it with full confidence. And the more that you actually face the rejection repudiation, the easier it gets. And I very much hope that we can continue to build a culture in which that very, only very, very rarely results in violence. So Yvonne Valenza asks, I'm interested in knowing how this relates to issues that are not simply a matter of opinion, but form policies and practices that harm minority people groups. How do we engage in a loving way without promoting or advocating for the kinds of views, since you said earlier that part of loving is advocating for the other? Yeah, so again, there's there's nothing that, that suggests to us that loving your enemy means agreeing with your enemy. I mean, it's important to go hammer and tongs with things that you think are incorrect. But if your ultimate goal is to persuade, you must do it with love. You must disagree with love. You must go hammer and tongs with love. Now, it takes skill, right? But it also takes a a commitment. It takes a lot of prayer. And it takes a lot of self-discipline to do that. I mean, the easiest thing to do is to say, that person's wrong. That person, therefore, is evil. That person is stupid. But that person, let me tell you, will not be persuaded and will not change, will not improve as a result of your insults. Nobody in history has ever been insulted into agreement. Furthermore, there may be something that you don't understand. You know, there's a a story I tell in my book of, you know, I I had been reading about mode of attribution asymmetry, you know, the psychological phenomenon of, you know, permanent conflict. And then I was at this this rally. I was speaking at a a conservative rally in in, uh, New Hampshire 600 conservative activists, super fired up. I was the only non-politician on the docket. Everybody else was running for president. So it was clearly a mistake that I was invited to this thing. But I thought to myself, what can I do that a presidential candidate won't do? And I said, say whatever I think. I don't have to run for anything. So I said in the middle of my speech, I said, remember, I said, I know you all agree. And I know that on a lot of stuff, but I want you to think now about the people who would be uncomfortable here. They would feel maybe even unsafe here they're political progressives. And I want you to remember one thing, that they're not stupid and they're not evil. They're not the enemy. There are fellow citizens with whom you happen to disagree in public policy. And if you want to convince them, which should be your goal, the only way you can do it is with love. And this lady, she shouts out, actually, they're stupid and evil. Okay. Now, it was, she was trying to be funny. She wasn't trying to hurt my feelings or anything. But that moment, my mind went to Seattle, which is my hometown. And I thought about my family, my parents, my brother, the progressives. I'm the odd one out because I'm this like big capitalism proponent, right? And, and, and I have my reasons for holding these views, but I'm not going to lie. I'm the oddball. I'm, I'm, you know, the outlier of my particular family. When that lady said that, she was talking about my mother and I took it personally. Look, I disagreed with my mother on politics. 
and certainly on economics. And I think I was right, but my mother was not stupid and my mother was not evil. And when somebody has obnoxious views with which I strongly disagree, for me to dismiss that person in the most prejudicial terms is counterproductive to doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And it suggests that I don't really care about persuading that person. I just want to scratch my dopamine urge. I'm acting immorally because I'm saying that that person is stupid and evil, and that is wrong on its face. There is no, nothing that should tell me that, that person is stupid and evil because they hold an opinion that I find to be obnoxious, even really obnoxious. So we have so many questions and rapidly running out of time. I'm actually going to combine two uh, because they're somewhat related. Maybe you can respond to both of them. Larry Rodman asks, how do we move forward in a post-truth slash fake news environment? And Peg Chamberlain asks, what is the role of truth in bridging social capital? So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of that, you know, that the social media environment, which is largely infected the way that we see news and the press and the media has been one in which we express opinions as if they were incontrovertible facts. But in so doing, we're spinning a lot of information. And, you know, one of the problems with being a social scientist is that, you know, I teach a class in happiness at the Harvard Business School. And it's super fun. But on the first day of class, what I tell them is like, I'm going to tell you about the science of happiness and everything I say, you can go to the internet and find a study that says the opposite. Why? Because when you're dealing with complex and adaptive human phenomena, this is not, I mean, we're not talking about physics here. We're talking about, you know, the human stuff that's hard to estimate. And, and so the same thing is true in anything we're talking about with respect to politics and human flourishing and all the things that we're trying to adjudicate in American politics today, which is to say that if you have one particular point of view, you can find data and studies and evidence to support your point of view and say that the other side is simply not paying attention to science and lying, right? So, so that's the, and, and that lends itself in the internet environment, which is highly siloed and extremely ideological to a post-truth scenario where every where you, all you say is the other side is lying and then you make sure that you're lying too but lying in a particular way, right? So what do we do? We have to be better consumers is the bottom line. And furthermore, we have a responsibility primarily to question and repudiate our own side. This is something that's important for us to emphasize. If you wanna be a greater apostle for truth, calling out untruth on the other side is not that useful. If you really want to have an impact, insist on truth, insist on accuracy, insist on sincerity, and insist on balance on your side. Then you actually have a, you have a, a fighting chance of bringing more truth to the debate. And this is a principle that actually works across many, many different areas of life. We'll take one last question. This one is from Richard Rabel, who asks that he says he loves the idea of persuasion as a nonviolent expression of love, but often persuasion is associated with manipulation. How are these things different? When is persuasion loving and when, it is, when is it manipulative? And how would you persuade someone who is suspicious of persuasion that is actually one of our best, if not the best, ways to love our enemies? So when persuasion turns into manipulation, it stops being loving. And that really, you know that based on your, based in your own heart. You know the difference between when you're being persuasive and when you're being manipulative. And it, it, love stops when manipulation starts. Why? Because manipulation is persuasion on your own behalf. 
<laughs> what you want is to persuade for the good of the other. Remember, love is to will the good of the other. If I'm going to manipulation, it's to will the good of me. <laughs> and that's the dividing line. That's the frontier. And that's ultimately a moral judgment that each one of us has to make. We should never manipulate another person. We should persuade people as much as we can. When people are skeptical of it, well, you know, it's amazing. My friend David Brooks, he wrote a book called The Social Animal. And, and, and it's sort of my area of research as a social scientist. We have a million ways to, to, to ascertain the veracity of motive and the purity of people's intentions. Very, very little of it is what we say. People kind of know when you're trying to spin them when you're trying to manipulate them, the, one of the biggest reasons that they're skeptical is because they should be. If somebody's skeptical of your persuasion, examine your persuasion. The, the last word is tricky and it's kind of like ending a book. Uh, you always wonder, you know, how should you send people off? And something like love your enemies, this is a call to action. It's because it's not a complaint. Look, there's always problems. The question is, what's the solution? And Jesus Christ gave the solution to, to, to love your enemies. Look, if I do anything today, it's, that, it's to impart the idea that we can be the agents for change. There's nobody on this call who says, I love how polarized this country has gotten. I love the fact that I'm, you know, I'm fighting in the most vitriolic terms, people who have partisan differences with me. You're on this call listening to me and Sheree because you agree that this is a problem and that we need to solve it. So if we've given you in our conversation some ideas, some new things that you can do, remember that bringing people together and lifting people up is your apostolic vocation. It's a good thing to do and it will bring you joy and it will bring you peace. Thank you. Arthur, thank you. Thank you for listening. We'd love for you to subscribe to Trinity Forum Conversations on your favorite podcast platform and to share this episode with a friend. More information on today's program and show notes are available on the Trinity Forum website at www.ttf.org. Until next time, we wish you the gift of great conversations.